0: So that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You may be seated. All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this passage of scripture that you sent your son Jesus to teach. That you empowered uh, our gospel writer Matthew to write down uh, that we can trust is wonderful for the benefit of our life in faith. And God, we ask you that you would help this scripture today to come alive in our hearing. Lord, that by your spirit, we know you're present with us, but we ask you that you would take this text of scripture and use it to form us, change us, transform us into being people who can rightly live out all of this truth in our lives, in every area of our lives, that it would be to your glory. Lord, that we would see you glorified in our midst, that the people around us in the world would see you as glorious because of what we see here in this passage Form us into the kind of people who live this out in obedience. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Uh, today, as we move into chapter six of our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we are in week nineteen of a thirty-two week series. Week nineteen. I know some of you like those updates. That's good. We are also about sixty percent of the way through our series, but we're only forty percent of the way through the gospel or through the Sermon on the Mount. We're about 60% of the way through the series because we spent one week on each of the Beatitudes early on. And so now we're picking up pace as we move from chapter 6 into 7. We're going a little bit quicker uh, to bring this to a conclusion following Easter. And I don't know about you. I've said this a couple times during this series. I have been shocked at how impactful this has been on me. Like I always knew the Sermon on the Mount was great. I always knew that it was difficult, which is why I avoided it. Kind of. Honestly, there are difficult things said in this passage of scripture, in this, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. It's not like it's surprising to me that the teaching of Jesus is impactful. It's just surprising to me how week after week after week, as I study the text or I sit under the teaching from somebody else, how it just hits me in the heart, right in the core of who I am. And it's forming me to be, I think, a better, more faithful follower of Jesus. And so we praise God for that. But I also kind of don't like it anymore. How's that sound? Like, I'm kind of done with it. I'm like, can we just get a break? How about an easy one? Uh, nope. Also, though, I think it's why I feel like C.S. Lewis, when he wrote about this, um, he, he said some—I'll read what he said in a minute. It's funny. But he was criticized by, about not really liking the Sermon on the Mount as much as he liked the teaching of Paul. So he was publicly criticized by this guy who said a whole bunch of things, and um, then he responded publicly by writing an essay about it, and in his writing, he talked about this—this this is what it says— um, Not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount. This is his response to that. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? (laughs) I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. (laughs) Amen. Right? So who's ready for the next knock with the sledgehammer, right? Because that's where we're going. Here's the outline. The visibility of our faith, the visibility of our faith, the motivation of our hearts, and the reward of our Father. The visibility of our faith, the motivation of our hearts, and the reward of our Father. So first we start with the visibility of our faith. Now, back in November, I was preaching through Matthew chapter 5. We were at verses 13 through 15, 16, somewhere in there. 16, and we were talking about how Jesus calls his people to be salt and light in the world. I'll read the passage from verse 13 in chapter 5. It says, you're salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. We've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount as a whole that Jesus is creating for himself a new kingdom community, a new group of people who are going to live out this new kingdom identity in every area of life. Doesn't matter what area of life you think of, this is the area of life that you're to live out this new kingdom identity. And when they do, what happens is people respond and they glorify God. So you bring your faith to bear on your work, on your education. On your recreation, on your family, on your relationships, on your friendships. You bring the kingdom of God into that place. And when people recognize the reality of Jesus' kingdom at work in us and through us, they'll glorify God because of it. That's what this text is telling us. Now, I summarized um, the salt and light idea back in November like this. I said the salt of the earth, being salt of the earth people, means that we need to maintain our Christ-like distinctiveness as we live around a whole bunch of other people in the city. Our Christ-like distinctiveness. But at the same time, the light of the world idea means that we need to engage in our Christ-like mission. So salt of the earth people means we maintain our Christ-like distinctiveness. Light of the world people means that we're on a Christ-like mission. Trying to make the fame and deeds of God known in our day. Now, it says in verse 16, if you keep going. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the point. So that, it says in the middle of the verse, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, the light that we have here, the light that we have, the light that we've received, the light of the world is Jesus. The light that we have is the truth of the gospel and that he has brought us into relationship with himself, that he has purpose for us in this life and that we will spend eternity growing in our appreciation of who he is and the knowledge of who he is. It's going to be glorious. The, we've been brought into relationship with God. This is the light that we have. The light we have is the truth of the gospel, and this is what we're singing, this is what we're preaching, this is what we're celebrating week in and week out as we gather together for worship, word, and sacrament. This is what we are participating in as we gather together in community through the week. This is what we're participating in as we wake up in the morning and we go out into the world shining as light and living as salt of the earth. This is what's going on. We're participating in the kingdom of God. This is why the light we have is meant to shine not just in us, but actually through us and because of the the why I said in the second half of the verse so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven This is what we're called to participate in in Jesus new kingdom as his new kingdom people now just take that idea lodge that in your brain hold on to that for a second and then look at chapter 6 verse 1 beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. You, you ever hear that, that, that scratchy sound? It's like a record scratch. I'm not cool enough to know what that is, but it's like... Ah, ah, ah. When an idea doesn't work, you go, hang on a second, and you hear that in movies. I hear it in movies. I'm sure you do. Hang on a second, right? On one hand, in chapter 5, he's saying, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. In the other passage, in chapter 6, He's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. What? In the first passage, we're supposed to live out our faith in full view of the watching world. In the second passage, we're supposed to beware of doing that. In the first passage, we're supposed to let people see our good works. In the second passage, we're actually cautioned about doing things in front of other people. In the first passage, if we're faithful to living the light that we have and shining the light that we have, that we have received, people will, then it says, give glory to your father who's in heaven. But in the second passage, if we do good things in front of others, we have no reward from our father who is in heaven. There's something going on here. What changed between chapter five and chapter six? Nothing. Because as we will see in a moment, this is talking about the motivation of our hearts it's talking about the motivation of our hearts in matthew chapter 5 jesus tells his listeners he says let your light shine before others because he knows that there is actually a temptation for them to be cowardly with the light that they have the truth that they have and he's actually changing them and transforming them into being people who are light of the world kind of people and part of that call is that they need to engage in a christ-like mission in the here and now moments of the everyday life that's what he's talking to them about But he knows that when he says, let your light shine before others, he is encouraging them past their cowardice and their fear. They need to take the light they have and shine it into the rest of the world. That's Matthew 5. But in Matthew 6, Jesus tells his hearers, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And he tells them that because in the life of a spiritual people, a religious people, there is a self-centered, narcissistic pride that kind of rises up in our hearts when we do good things. And Jesus knows that that kind of life is going to ultimately lead to spiritual death. It's two separate things going on as he approaches this. It's the visibility of our faith. And in the visibility of our faith, we can error in two ways. In the Matthew 5 error is that we can actually silence the message or shield the light that we have because we're afraid of the consequences of what might happen if we go public with our faith and people find out that we're aligned with Jesus. We're worried that there might be some persecution that comes and Jesus says, hey, here's the deal. You need to shine as light in the world. But in Matthew 6, the error that we can commit is practicing our righteousness in front of other people so that they will praise us. We want their approval. We want their a com- their, their commendation. And so we do some things in front of them so that we might be seen and that we might be praised. And the ironic thing is actually that persecution, which is I think what they fear in Matthew chapter 5, where we try to suffocate the light or put a shield over the light to guard it from going out into the world, the persecution that might come as a consequence of us being open about our faith, persecution is actually not a bad thing, ultimately. I mean, probably not that great when we're going through it, right? But it's ultimately not a bad thing. What's ultimately a terrible thing, though, is if you're practicing your righteousness in front of other people because you want their approval and you're shaping your message and your life to get the praise of others. That's a problem. Let me show you what I mean. The visibility of our faith. That's the the visibility of our faith. Secondly, the motivation of our hearts. Now, like I said, today and then into the next three Sundays, we're into a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to talk about three crucial foundational pillars in any faith life, really any faith life in the world. And he's going to talk about it particularly with regard to his new kingdom people. He's going to show us, uh, today we're looking at giving to the needy. Next week we'll look at prayer. And then two weeks or three weeks from now, we'll look at fasting. Okay? Generosity, prayer, and fasting. Three pillars that we see in a lot of different world religions. And Jesus is highlighting these three things here because they're foundational to the people he was speaking to in Judaism. They're also foundational to his new kingdom people, people who are followers of Jesus, Christians. He's highlighting these things and it's really translating the wholeness that we looked at last week into what it looks like in our spiritual devotions and practices. Now, we're going to look at all three of these different things, these, this giving and, prayer and generos- generosity and prayer and fasting. We're going to look at all three of them. But notice that he doesn't say if you give, and if you pray, and if you fast. He says when you give, and when you pray, and when you fast. So the, the operative assumption of Jesus is that this is going to be a pillar of your life if you're leading into, leaning into your relationship with God. That these are things that you're going to be giving yourself to at different times. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say if you do, he says when you do. Now generosity and prayer and fasting are basically expected for people who are living in a relationship with him but this text, I want to make an argument, is not necessarily just about those things, but it's actually about the underlying motivation of why you do those things. So it's not, just about the motive, it's not just about the righteous deeds themselves, it's about the motivation of why you're doing it. It's taking the good things that he calls us to do, and then actually going a little bit deeper, a layer deeper, and asking why we're doing them. It goes beyond the action, and it filters those things through the motivation of our heart. Right, It takes that thing and it, it kind of like grabs a hold of it and says, okay, generosity and prayer and fasting. It, it forces it through a filter of the motivation of our heart to see what comes out the other side. That's what he's doing with this passage of scripture. Now, I had to make a decision here on this text. I'm going to tell you this simply and clearly. I hope it's clearly. I had to make a decision on this. Because I could have taught this whole text from the point of view of what it means to give to the needy and then how our heart needs to be aligned in the right way on that. And I think that would be fine. And I cut a huge section on that that I'm going to summarize in about 10 seconds. We should give to the needy because it's based on the character of God, the commands of Scripture in the Old Testament, the way we see it lived out in the New Testament, and how we see it done for 2,000 years in Christian history, and how when we do it right, it's one of the best witnesses we have to the truth of the gospel and the transformed life that we're living because of who he is. That's why. Okay. Here's why I'm not going to go into it in depth at this time. I, am not allowed, I could preach for two hours every Sunday, easily, no problem. You won't let me. Right, I preached a little long last week, got a little heat for it. <laughs> got a little heat for it. When you're doing three gatherings back to back to back and you go five minutes long, or seven minutes long, maybe eight minutes long. <laughs> People who are parking are inconvenienced. The children's ministry volunteers who are always very gracious Smile at me. They're just kind of gritting their teeth while they smile, because I know. So I'll preach a little bit long. I'm not going to do that today. But I'm going to linger on a different issue than I could. I'm going to linger on the issue of identity. I'm going to talk about the motivation of our heart. I'm going to linger on the motivations of our do-gooding. And I'm going to try to come at it from a heart-level thing with motivation, because honestly, I don't think generosity is a problem at Christ City. I think you're very generous. I think our primary problems around here are not related to generosity, but more related to the masks that we wear and how we cover ourselves up from others. More related to our lack of vulnerability. I think it's more related to the image crafting that we do, where we want people to see us and perceive us in a particular way, where we want to project a certain kind of image to those around us so that we might be seen in that way. I think it's related to things like comparison. I think the primary problems we have around here are more to do with people-pleasing than they are with generosity. And so that's why I'm going to linger in this passage in this way. And look at the motivation of our heart behind the religious devotional activities we do. Let me show you the first one. Wrong, I'm going to show you two wrong heart motivations, and then I'm going to show you the right one um, before we finish. first one that's, I think, incorrect. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Sounding a trumpet before you, here's what that means. Look at me and look at what I'm doing. (laughs) Sound a trumpet before you before you can do something good. You go, everybody pay attention to me for a second. I'm about to do something awesome. Look over here. Love me, affirm me, need me, Notice me. Watch what I'm doing. Applaud me. Celebrate me. With the goal that you would then be praised by those people who notice you. That's what he's getting at. For Christians, when we're tempted to put our good works on display, to get the attention of those that we admire and respect, it's actually an alarm bell going off underneath us that we're not serving God with a singular-minded focus, but that we're actually serving him with a divided heart. We're doing the things that he's called us to do, but we're doing it so that other people might notice. And you go, oh, I just realized I do that. Yeah, welcome here. Sledgehammer time. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this is what the hypocrites do. That's a great word. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but the totality of the Gospel of Matthew, you see that Jesus regularly refers to a certain group of people as hypocrites. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that's who he's calling hypocrites. And if you go to Matthew 23 later on, you can read through there, and he just hammers them about this, and he calls them hypocrites because the intent of their heart was not that they would honor God and glorify God, but that they would be seen in a particular kind of way. So he calls them hypocrites. But the origins of the word hypocrite actually refer to an actor who's wearing a mask. It's putting on a mask so that you might be disguised from people knowing who you really are. It's seeing the whole world as a stage, you yourself as an actor, and you putting on the particular kind of mask that you want to have as the image that you present to everybody else. It's when the heart and the actions don't line up, and it's where there's an intent to deceive. right? Like We're going to gather at the Stanley Theater on Granville for Good Friday with... East Van and Kitsilano and, uh, and us from South Van, we're all going to gather together and we're going to have a great time on Good Friday in that theater. But if you go to that theater today, tomorrow, the next day, and you buy a ticket, you go in there and you see somebody acting, you know when you go in that that's what they're going to do. It's not deceptive, it's entertainment. It's their craft. They're an actor. They put on a mask, they play a part. The hypocrite, in terms of what Jesus is talking about, is when you put on the mask with an attempt to deceive somebody in regular life. It's fair game when you go to the play and you see somebody put on a mask. You expect them to do that. It's not fair game when they're doing that in life. And so if we mask up and we want people to think about us in a certain way, Jesus actually is literally saying you're a play actor. You're putting on a mask to deceive somebody. And every single one of us is prone to this. It's not just the politicians who do photo ops when they do good things. It's not just the celebrities who fly in on their helicopter to see a bunch of people who are starving near a well that they paid to build and then they kind of wash their hands with hand sanitizer and get back in the helicopter after they get a picture for Instagram. It's not just that image management. We're all prone to this. All of us. Jesus is warning us against seeking the approval of man over and against the approval of God. Scott McKnight wrote, what Jesus has in mind is not simply fakery, as if hypocrisy could be reduced to the alarming contrast of who we are and how we want to be seen. What Jesus aims at is the self-deceit that weaves itself into the fabric of a person's spirituality in which there is not only a notice me approach, but also an inability to know that the problem is present. The sense of hypocrisy ought to warn us This is why spiritual directors or close friends or leaders need to be attentive to the codes of our action. It's why I have mentors in my life who I go to and intentionally ask them questions about me and intentionally give them permission to speak into my life. It's because I'm blind to certain things that I do where I am actually being hypocritical and putting an image out there that is not true. It's why I have an accountability partner, but it's not an accountability partner just in terms of sexual purity. It's people who know me and work with me who go, dude, you're not being the same guy in front of everybody else as you are privately. And they have the ability to call me out on that. We actually all need that in our life. It's why I have a very close relationship with my wife. And because I have a very close relationship with my wife, she can say, hey, Mr. Sunday Brett is not the same as Mr. Monday Brett. And anytime that happens, she can crack the whip on me on that one and go you're not living it out you are putting on a mask and pretending you're somebody you're not now i get it i have the easiest job in the whole world as a christian i don't have to worry about like you know suffocating the light of god here or masking the light of god my whole job is to do this well my whole job is to talk about being distinctive the world salt of the earth kind of people my whole job is actually quite easy and i get that it's much more difficult when you walk into your workplace tomorrow morning or where you go to school or whatever it is that you're doing tomorrow as you go back to regular life beyond the sunday gathered church i get that but we know that hypocrisy is setting in when we try and nurture a certain kind of image of ourself and i want to say that that can play in a couple of different ways We can play it off where we live like we don't believe in Jesus from Monday to Saturday. And then we come here on Sunday and it's a bless the Lord. Hey, hey, bless you, brother. Bless you, sister. It's the religious mask that we put on. Or it could be that we're really actually transformed followers of Jesus. And Monday morning, it's not that we take off the religious mask. It's that we put on a worldly mask so that people will accept us. try to protect a certain kind of image or we try to project a certain kind of image that we want to have and we will act in a certain way that will then get us the approval of people that we want we want their approval we'll act in a way that will gain that approval it's it's i mean on the news they call it virtue signaling it's disingenuous jesus calls it hypocrisy you're like this is super fun this is a great sermon really good text when we seek the praise of others that jesus says truly i say to you they have received their reward they've received their reward that language of have received is like a business transaction where you you order a bunch of supplies and then you go to pick up the supplies and they mark on your invoice fully received like you've been given everything you ordered you've already received it all you can expect nothing else you've only paid for what you've already received there's no more in the order that's still to come they've received their reward in full Now, if you're thinking, okay, Brett, that does sound like sin that you would be tempted with because you are you and you're right, but you say to yourself, I'm, I'm meek and I'm quiet and I'm just a mild person and I don't need the attention and the affirmation of others the same way you do, Brett. I know I'm just doing well, serving God just by myself. It's okay. If that's what you're thinking, again, a sledgehammer for you. Sledgehammer. Bum, bum. I'm tone deaf, so I'm not doing that for your approval. Um, here's the second wrong motivation in the text, and it's a sneaky one. Look at this, verse six or chapter 6, verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you, okay? I said it's sneaky. What happens when your left hand sees what your right hand is doing? Okay, self high five. Self congratulatory high five. When your left hand sees what your right hand is doing, self-congratulatory generosity is what this is talking about. In verse two, it says, sound no trumpet before you. But what's implied here is that you're silently inwardly kind of blowing your own horn, tooting your own horn. Right? You do something really good. Nobody else notices, but internally you're like, do, do, do. awesome. That's what's going on. This is where you pull a muscle patting yourself on the back, right? You ever heard that phrase? I got that all the time growing up. Maybe it was just an Alberta hockey dad phrase. I'm not sure, but like that was a great game. And my dad would be like, don't pull a muscle patting yourself on the back. I'd be like, but I scored four goals and I got the game winner and I was dominant out there. And I really believe those are just facts, not my opinion. And he would say, don't pull a muscle hurting, (laughs) patting yourself on the back. That's what's going on. It's a self-congratulatory assessment of the things that you have accomplished. Okay, the first wrongly motivated generosity that we see in the text is transactional in the sense that you sound a horn, hey, hey, look at me doing something awesome. And then you get the praise of the other person and Jesus says, hey, that praise that you received from that other person, that's the totality of your reward. Nothing else for you to receive. But the second wrongly motivated generosity is self-congratulatory where this outward merciful act of generosity that you give yourself to ends up being the source or the origin point of origin for the little party that you throw in your head where you tell yourself how awesome you are where you're the hero of the story and that sense of fullness really becomes your only reward Um, john stott on this text he said if we keep accounts and plan our giving as conscientious christians should we're bound to know how much we give away we cannot very well close our eyes while writing out our checks nevertheless as soon as the giving obviously he didn't have debit terminals at his church right I don't make jokes in the middle of a quote. It's not that funny and I don't know where I was. Nevertheless, as soon as the Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Nevertheless, as soon as the giving of the gift is decided and done, it will be in keeping with this teaching of Jesus that we forget it. We are not to keep recalling it in order to gloat over it or preen ourselves on how generous, disciplined, or conscientious our giving may have been. Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not self-congratulation. So why do we do these things? Why do we seek the praise of others? Why do we self-congratulate on doing just a basic pillar of the faith? Just a basic thing that God's called all people who follow him to do. Why? On both accounts, I'm going to say that it's because we're insecure in our identity in Christ we ultimately know that we don't measure up and we aren't sure if we can really trust our heavenly father to still love us and to still reward us and so what we do is we look for that reward in places that are more immediately gratifying like i don't know if the father might reward that thing i did in secret but i know that if i post it online i'll get praise I don't trust that God will really love me, and maybe he doesn't really love me the way that I think he does, and maybe my identity in Christ is not as secure as I would have hoped it is. And so if I just fill myself up with a sense of accomplishment and self-congratulatory pride, then at least I feel better. You know the people who, who make the algorithms for your social media feeds and whatever social media feeds you're on? They actually know that this is true about the human mind and that you get a sense of affirmation and accomplishment by posting something on there that other people like and praise you for, and that it actually hijacks the pleasure center of your brain so that when you post something on whatever social media feed you have and then you get the affirmation of a bunch of other people, you feel really great about yourself. It's a psychological brain hack that they've done to make money. I've talked about this before at length. But it's true. We desire the praise of others because we're a little bit insecure as we stand before God. Like, how do I know that I'm enough? Well, they praised me. How do I know that I measure up? Well, I kept my generosity quiet, but I did keep score internally, and the people that I'm secretly comparing myself to are losing, and I'm winning. And that means that I'm good enough to be approved and affirmed and loved. Right? there's that internal game of, like, I... I I did this thing, and I didn't tell anybody about it, but I have the self-congratulatory approval of my own heart. And then I look at other people, and I'm like, yep, I am better than you. Oh, I'm the only one who's ever thought this before I see. That's great. It's really great. You, in in the first two gatherings, nope. Everyone's like, I don't know what this is. Most of it comes down to comparison. Um, We've got a a podcast coming out about the topic of comparison pretty soon, but really quickly, comparison. If you look up and you, you compare yourself to somebody who you think is doing better than you or is smarter than you or better looking than you or more successful than you and you compare up, you immediately fall into despair because you're not at that level. But if you compare to somebody who you think you're better than or more successful than or you fill in whatever blanks of metrics that you're using to compare yourself and you look down on them, you're immediately filled with pride. And here's the thing. For the Christian person who is living in a battle of comparison, you're either in despair or pride and you're just vacillating between the two of like, oh, I'm not good enough. Well, I'm better than him. I'm not good enough. Well, I'm better than him. I'm not good enough. I'm better than him. Or you could just silence that entire game. You could. You could by recognizing that that's not who you're supposed to compare yourself to anyway. You're running your own race. Comparison as Christians is a game that you might play, but you will never win. I also want to say this, and I think this is important for us, that there is nothing wrong with seeking approval as long as you're not seeking approval over and above God. There's nothing wrong with being approved by a person. There's nothing wrong with receiving a compliment. There's nothing. You don't have to be the people who walk around and you know, somebody will say this to me after. Oh, there's a good sermon today. And I go, oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, oh. That's what I did when I first started preaching because I had no idea how to handle a compliment. I still don't really know how to deal with it. I just say thank you now. It seems to be the easiest way to get out of that awkward situation. I don't need the praise of man. I don't need the praise of man, but it sure is nice to be encouraged once in a while. Oh. I don't think there's anything wrong with being affirmed in that way. I don't think there's anything wrong with... Uh, uh, you've never met a person who's too encouraged. How about that? Like you've never ever in your entire life met a person who was too encouraged. You may have met people who take the encouragement you give them and take it as praise. That's between them and God, but you've never met a person that has been too encouraged. And I don't want to create a culture around here where we're afraid to tell each other that you're awesome because we're worried about the being a praise of man, which we're worried about being a bad heart motivation and just is going to kill us in spiritual ways. That's not what we're aiming at here. You've never met a person who's too encouraged. But please do hear me. The people or person that you most seek approval from will ultimately shape your identity because you will conform to their standard of righteousness in order to be accepted. So the person or people that you most crave approval from will ultimately shape your identity because you will conform to their standard of righteousness in order to be accepted. And you can actually trace that fear of man issue to the circumstances and situations where you feel crushed when that person or people did not affirm you when you did something and did not notice you when you did something that you were doing to get their approval. See, if you seek and receive the praise of man, you've received your reward in full. If you seek and receive the warm fuzzies, as it relates to your own greatness when you do something good, you've received your reward in full. But if you're ready and willing to confess your mixed motivations and your image management and your people-pleasing tendencies and the way that you're cultivating a a public persona to gain acceptance and the way that you're wearing a mask to fit into different crowds of people and you're not really being authentically yourself, but you're actually play-acting so that they'll love you, If you're willing to bring that mixed motivation to the foot of the cross in humility and honesty, you can actually receive the divine affirmation of your Heavenly Father. And His rewards are good. Whose glory are you living for? Whose praise are you living for? The affirmation and reward of your Heavenly Father who knows what is good for you Or the affirmation and praise of the people around you. who You just want them to like you. Somebody said something to me in between the gatherings on this. They're like, oh, you have great insights on this. And I said, thank you. Because that was awkward. Do you know why? This is my prevailing sin in life, period. Like, I think this particular spot on this stage is susceptible to being tempted to this. I have great insights on this because I fight with it just about every day. So am I willing to kill it? Am I willing to put it at the foot of the cross? I hate this about me. I want you to like me. And that bothers me. It bothers me because I'm I'm concerned that I'd be willing to say things that you want to hear so that I could have that reciprocity where I could receive your approval. There are certain people in my life that I want them to approve me. And that's not necessarily bad, but what am I willing to do to compromise so that they will love me? There. it's cheaper than therapy, right? That was just a 30-second self-indulgent exploration of my own soul. The visibility of our faith. See, we're called to let our light shine for the glory of God, not for the praise of others. The motivation of our hearts. See, if we're motivated by the praise of others or that self-congratulatory sense of accomplishment in ourselves, then we need to confess that. We need to lay it at the feet of Jesus. It's okay, he'll forgive you. He forgives me. But we do need to turn third to the reward of the Father. Look at the text again, verses two to four. It says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So you say, what is the reward of the father? That's the question I have when I look at this text. What's the reward of our heavenly father in our lives? I think it's in part related to the blessed are statements of Matthew chapter five, verses one through 10, where we looked at the Beatitudes, The blessed statements or blessed, where we said to be blessed is to be happy, flourishing, and in right relations with God and others. I think the reward is actually caught up in that statement because those all had future components to it. So you have blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God you kind of go through all of it. There's a future reward component to it, but the reward is all wrapped up in the reality that you're in relationship with God and that you're seeing the will of God lived out in your life. And so there's something about the reward that's intrinsically tied to the relationship we have with them. And so the blessing and the reward of the kingdom of God is not for those who seek the praise of man, the praise of women, the praise of others, but, or even those who want to compare themselves to others in some sort of self-congratulatory kind of way. But the reward is those for, is for those who serve quietly and they, and they serve and they They give and they do good, but they do it all for God's glory, not their own. That's where the sweet spot of reward is. It's talking about having hearts that are aligned with God. They're connected to him. Where we love what God loves and we want what God wants. The reward is then seen and it's experienced in the fruit of our labor as we live our lives that God might be glorified through us. And the only way that we can live and obey the command of Jesus to let our light shine before others is actually when our hearts are really desperate that the watching world around us would see our good works and then glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so as it pertains to giving to the needy, we don't give in order to get. We don't give in order to be seen. We don't give in order to puff ourselves up in some kind of way. We give with a pure heart, with a singular focus, with an unmixed motive, out of the overflow of the love that we ourselves have received from our Heavenly Father that we might live into His will for our lives. And when we know His love, we can then give truly, and we can give lovingly, and we can give quietly, trusting that our Father who sees in secret will reward us. He rewards us. By this expression, it's, uh, John Calvin said, by this expression, talking about the one who rewards us in secret, he means that we ought to be satisfied with having God for our only witness. And let me say this. None of us have ever had a pure motive in our life. If you're waiting for a pure motive to do something that God's called you to do, you will be like the skeleton sitting in the chair waiting to get up. It's just a skeleton 20 years later. You're just dead. You'll be dead before you have a pure motive. You've never had, I've never had a pure motive in my life. We cannot wait for pure motives to do good things. We have to live out of it and ask God to correct us and align us as we do those things that he has called us to do. But hear me, there is one who always had a pure motive. Who never ever served for the praise of others who never did something because he thought it would look good on him, who never turned spiritual acts of religious devotion into a game of comparison, who never turned his generosity into a comparison whereby he won the game, that he could kind of keep score and do better than his neighbor. There's only one who ever had a pure motivation. And Jesus was the most generous one in the sense that he, in perfect obedience to his father, gave everything. He went to the cross and he gave quietly. With no fanfare, he drew attention not to himself, but silently went to the cross on our behalf. When nobody else in the city realized what was happening, he gave his life for us. That 2,000 years later, we'd be talking about it on the west coast of North America. You've got to think, put yourself in the shoes of the people who lived in the city of Jerusalem in the early 30s of the first century A.D. You've got to think about this. Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth was taken outside the city and crucified, and he died for the atonement, the atoning work. He died in our place for our sins that we might be welcomed into relationship with God our Father, that we might receive his reward. He died, and no one noticed very few people had a clue what was going on. You got to think there were people living in Jerusalem who were just like going down to the grocery store to buy vegetables for dinner that night. Oh, did you hear they crucified that Jesus of Nazareth? Oh yeah, interesting guy. He just silently died in our place with no fanfare, with a pure motivation that God and God alone would be glorified through his work. Because he knew the love of the Father and he was secure in his identity in the sense that he was God's son. He trusted God to reward him. And God did reward him. This isn't going to be on the screen. I want you to hear it. Philippians chapter 2. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, it says, therefore, because of all of that humility and all of that obedience and all of that pure motivation where he only wanted God to be glorified, look at this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father see because of jesus perfect quiet singular focused obedience with no mixed motivation he's been given the name that is above every name jesus quiet gift on our behalf did not go unnoticed it went unnoticed by the people around him in the city save for those who knew what he was doing but it didn't go unnoticed by the father the glory of that gift has transformed this world and it has brought infinite praise and worship to god and so it should jesus is the one with a pure motivation who accomplished what we could not that we might walk with him and have our motivations made pure. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.